Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. Hi, and welcome to Cybersecurity Inside. Today, we're going to do a What That Means podcast on trends in security. And we're going to have the conversation with Ron Perez, who's a fellow at Intel and also Intel's chief security architect. Enjoy the conversation. So AI, everybody's talking about it. So here's one question about it. I know that at the same time, AI is being used to enhance security. And I'm going to ask you how. I, I know it's you know can crawl through hardware and software and look for vulnerabilities. But I, I hope you can say more about it. It's also being used to look for vulnerabilities on you know on, uh, from the other side, right? To yeah. get in. So can you tell us like what you think? What is it predominantly doing now, both good and bad, specifically around cybersecurity? And where do you think it will head? Yeah, so there, there are two aspects, and I think you touched on these, right? There's AI for security, right? Mm-hmm. How can we use AI to enhance, find vulnerabilities, or to determine malicious behavior in, in some application, right? And then there's security for AI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. That, that one is more focused on how can I trust that the, the AI is doing, the machine learning is doing what it should be doing? Mm-hmm. Has the model been poisoned by somebody, right? Is uh, Which is very easy to do which will give you the, the wrong results. Right? Mm-hmm. Can the AI be explained, right? Can we actually determine, and is it deterministic? Do we get the same results every time? Uh, so there, there's that aspect too, right? How do we protect the model to make sure that it is the correct model? Here's where conflict competing technologies can come in again, right? To provide those levels of protection and to provide protection for the inference capability itself or the training capability, right? Uh, but going back to the, the first part of your question, there's the... AI for security. And we see a lot of use cases there. You talked about uh, the threat detection technology, right, on a, on a previous podcast with Ramchari, where they're using AI to determine, right, whether there are malicious workloads running by querying the various performance counters inside Intel's platforms and, you know, characterizing what a bad workload lo- looks like, right, what a, what a row hammer attack looks like from a performance counter perspective so that they can determine if, you know, this malicious software is running on that platform. Yeah, I used to think of all of the dynamic ways of looking for threats as kind of software based or, you know, maybe it was an antivirus software or something where you're constantly updating with what you're learning all the time. And now it's like, that's actually true for hardware too now. We have to constantly be, you know, looking yeah. at new kinds of threats and, Every time you find a way to discover something that might be doing something, I'll just say bad, you know, close on its heels are ways to disguise what's being done bad uh, so that you can't find it. So it's kind of this constant updating process. Absolutely. Right. Uh, and you're seeing because, you know, we talked about the global scale computing and all of being about efficiency. Right. You're seeing a lot more of the hardware being instrumented with telemetry so that mm-hmm. you know, we can determine right how to configure the system to be the most efficient. So this, this telemetry is fantastic from one standpoint, right, that it, it gives us a lot more data, right, that mm-hmm. will help us determine the system is being used inappropriately. On the other side, it also potentially creates a, a lot of side channels that you could leak information about 
what the system is doing. Maybe that's good, right? If you're looking for malware, for example, maybe that's not good if you're actually doing some sensitive computation where you may leak the contents of a cryptographic key, for example, right? Mm-hmm. So we're constantly, you know, balancing the two halves of technologies, right? The te- technology used for good, right? And sometimes used for bad too. What is your impression of the word resiliency when people are using that in the compute space? I've heard this come up more and more recently where it sort of used to be, to me, it was like protection, detection, and then resolution. And now the word is resiliency. It's like everybody says, look, you will be attacked. You know, you will be breached. It will happen to some degree. Could even be as as low as one employee clicking a bad link and then it's done, but something's going to happen. So how do you become resilient? Like, what does that mean? And how should people think about that when they start to map out resiliency? Yeah, I, I tend to think of it more as the ability to kind of recover, but it's all the capabilities you need to recover quickly. It may be, you know, do you have a golden copy of your firmware or of your operating system or whatever software you care about, do you have that someplace that you can reload quickly if the you know the copy that's running gets corrupted for something, right? How do you detect corruption? Do you have that capability, right? So that you can again recover quickly from that corruption. That's what to me resiliency is focused on, right? Now doing that at scale, mm-hmm. right, on a global basis, right? That's the challenge, right? I mean it's a challenge enough on one system. But uh, having the, the ability to do all those things, you know, being able to stage the software and keep copies to, um, that you can easily bring back into the system and reload, being able to to actually just reboot the system in a timely manner is part of resiliency too. Being able to ride through different attacks or outages. Well, so that's another question: Is resiliency always about coming back to your one hundred percent? functionality level or is a lot of it now about kind of staging that out and saying what's my minimum viable you know survival and how long can I do that and then getting to the next level whether it's you have to purchase entirely new systems or something how do you go about mapping that yeah that, that's an interesting discussion I'm not sure if I know the answer mm-hmm. right but uh, I know that uh, so in my Earlier days, I spent some time working on fault tolerance system. That's a whole different area, right? Uh, but I think in the fault tolerance world, they realized also that you know they they try to ride through errors basically by having redundant systems right everywhere else right in, in the system right everywhere it's possible. Mm-hmm. But for, for a failure, you want some redundancy. That was great, right? But I think they also realized you know after a while that all right, in some cases, it's better to fail fast and just restart than it is to constantly try to ride through. Because the more you try to ride through different failures, right, you kind of build up this history of um, not side channels so much as side effects, I mm-hmm. guess, right, that linger, right, and may become latent issues later on and lead to just, you know, an avalanche of failures, right, mm-hmm. uh, at some point. So at some point, and in, in some cases, you just want to actually stop and, and restart. There's, there's a mix. And knowing when you can ride through, when you should ride through, and when you should really just restart. That's kind of the trick. Um, and that's that's getting harder and harder, I think. How do you know when you're being attacked? I, sometimes it's uh, it's obvious. You can't even access your system, and now you've got a ransomware request. But <laughs> yeah. other times, I expect it's not so obvious, and maybe, in fact, there's diversion techniques happening where you're focused on one problem while something else is actually being siphoned off somewhere else. So yeah. how do you keep aware? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question too, right? And another one that I'm not sure I have all the answers to, but kind of bringing it back to confidence computing, I would say 
that's the beauty of those types of technologies is that they assume that you're going to be attacked. And really the goal now is to make sure that even in the environment of, you know, constant attacks, right, you can detect if your data or your code has been modified, which is really what you care about, that, you know, it's no longer the thing I thought it was or the thing that it should be. Mm -hmm. And or, right, you will stop running if there is a attack that kind of goes beyond, that breaks the uh, the properties that confidential computing establishes, right? That confidentiality piece, that the system, the hardware, right? The thing that we trust at the bottom, basically says, you know, you've broken this boundary, right? And I can't allow this software to run anymore. That's a good thing, right? It may be an availability problem for you because you need this workload to mm-hmm. be running. But I think, you know, in many cases, you would rather that my sensitive workload and, and access to this data cease rather than be exposed, right? So I'd rather that it's just stop than it be exposed. Do you classify every kind of different device and application, et cetera, all within your network or company or organization individually so that you know like what you're okay to just turn off and what you're okay to lumber through and try to have access? Do you do it by by human or by device? Or obviously humans have multiple devices now. So how do you how does an organization think about that? I think companies have different approaches to this. And uh, like a cloud service provider that's really interested in this at scale capability, right? They do it very different from, you know, some smaller enterprise. The enterprise can focus more on, you know, where do I want redundancy? Where do I need high availability components? But again, in a cloud environment, right, where they're really focused at scale, they assume that a number of components are going to be failing at any second, right? Somewhere mm-hmm. in my data center, there's going to be failures. And I've got to be able to overcome that, to, to ride through that, right? So they address that through, in a large, a large way, through software redundancy or software-based redundancy. You just have multiple copies of the same thing, you know, residing in different parts of the data center or across different data centers. How do you go about protecting these legacy-style systems and or even physical environments where things like servers or personal information are held? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the last part of that question is, is uh, probably the most interesting to me anyway, right? Because we're seeing the cloud, which was pretty much established as mm-hmm. kind of a glass house, right, environment. These are very secure data centers or mega data centers, but they're very secure. And there's only, you know, a few of them in any particular geography, right? Now we're seeing, right, in large part because of technologies like 5G, which is really addressing some of the latency issues to the end user, right? we're seeing a lot more interest in moving the workloads and the data farther out to the edge, right? Edge computing, right? right, so, right. And that, that's great for all of us. It means more redundancy, more duplication too, because you never know where you're going to be or where, where the data is going to be needed at any time of the day or any, any, any place in the world. But the bigger issue is the last part you asked about was the physical access. As you move the workload and the data out to the edge, you start placing these servers or these you know computing environments, right? in areas where they could be exposed to more uh, more attacks and, and physical access from the bad guys, right? Um, whether it's a server hanging on a telephone pole or in some base station someplace that's, you know, just behind a locked door, you know, whatever it is, they're going to be more exposed to those physical attacks, right? So we're seeing a lot more interest is in those physical protections, right? How can we provide physical attack prevention and detection capabilities and still not impact the overall cost of these solutions. And you're not just talking about uh, physical in terms of, you know, I I get a sledgehammer and I bash in the metal door and now I have physical access. You're talking even about 
sitting down with a laptop within 20 feet of or within a couple of feet of a server and somehow being able to access information. Exactly, exactly. Either through EMI leakage, right, uh, you know, power analysis, even just kind of walking away with, you know, the memory dims from a system. What about insider threats? What do you think about those? Is there really a way to protect other than sort of monitoring people doing very unusual behavior, like sending out a whole bunch of attachments to their personal account? Yeah, I think insider from uh, like more from an admin uh, capability, right? Yeah, for like a, a human, yeah. you know, who's uh, suddenly turned against you. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, I, I think, again, that's what uh, another area that's driving this trend around confidential computing is you don't want to have to worry about the admin for any particular system or data center, right? Uh, they should be focused on ensuring that the systems stay up, that they're efficient, that they have the latest software, et cetera, right? The fact that, you know, they could have access to the data, right, is a concern. Just by separation of privilege, they shouldn't have that capability, right? And confidential computing essentially takes that privilege away from them. Uh, all they need to know is that, hey, this is how much memory I need. This is how many CPUs I need. Or, you know, this is how much bandwidth I need for a particular workload, right? I don't need to see what's in that workload. Uh, I don't need to have access to that. That's very interesting. So removing the human from the equation entirely when it yeah. comes to very sensitive information. Huh. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. What other sorts of threats do you think are on the horizon that I haven't thought of? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we've covered the the main classes. Right? <laughs> uh, the, the physical attacks is a big one. Mm -hmm. Just the scalability and complexity that comes with that, right? At this global scale, right? Those are the basis for a whole set of concerns. The geopolitical aspects, right? That we're seeing more in the news uh, these days as well. I think because of what's happening, we've kind of been more globalized now and people are kind of rethinking that, you know, not that they are going to back off from being globalized because we kind of have to do that. But what happens if things change from a geopolitical standpoint? Do I have the ability to kind of pull back my data from some geography, right? What happens if law enforcement in that particular country or geography decides to seize, you know, all the contents of a, of a data warehouse, right, or of a data center? Do I have a plan in place for that? Right? So we're seeing a lot more interest in, in those types of questions. And what would the plan be, like locking down the data or deleting the data yourself? Yeah, I, th I think you'd want some assurance that you can't stop right, somebody from kind of coming in and just taking the servers, especially if they are mm -hmm. representing law enforcement. But you want some assurances, just like with encrypted data at rest, you want some assurances that they can't actually see the data anymore. It has those protections we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. They can kind of mm -hmm. see, you know, that there's something running there, right? but they can't see what's inside it. That's it's, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We didn't talk about, well, the two things we didn't talk about what, that are kind of buzzing around my head. Um, quantum compute and post-quantum cryptography. I, I don't know that we need to talk specifically about, you know, how it works and the, the algorithms, but what about how compute in the world is going to change and everything going to become exposed? And are people yeah. thinking ahead enough on this front? Yeah, enough, I'm not sure about, but people are definitely <laughs> thinking ahead, right? Uh, there's a, you know, NIST has had a competition now for quite a while, the National Institutes of Standard Technology, right? Mm -hmm. And the Europeans are doing the same thing on post-quantum crypto algorithms. Uh, I think we're coming kind of to a, to a head on some of those right now, right? But that will address uh, some of the concerns around quantum computing being put to the task of breaking modern crypto. So we're going to have these 
post-quantum crypto uh, algorithms and capabilities. We'll start to see some of those. In fact, some of those are already being rolled out even before the standards are set as you know, various companies start playing with these technologies to see what the impact is. Um, for many other technologies, it's just going to be an issue of extending the key lengths of the crypto systems that we use today to make it that much more difficult to brute force break those crypto algorithms. At least an interim mitigation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is your take on supply chain security? That's another topic that kind of gets thrown around a lot. Do you have any yes. pithy advice on that front? <laughs> I know it's a gigantic <laughs> yeah, topic. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, other than right that, yes, there there is a lot more interest, a lot more work going on in that area. So that is, again, oddly related to confidence computing insofar as that attestation capability, the ability to attest the environment that you have, right? We're seeing similar sorts of capabilities that have, you know, some of them have been being developed for quite a while now to where you can uh, basically attest the different components of a system as it moves through that supply chain. So that at the end, you get some assurance that, you know, yes, these are all authentic components. They're all the right pieces of the system that have been assembled in the right way for this particular system that I care about, right? And then, of course, you know, at scale for all the systems in in a data center, yeah, so I think we're that's going to be an exciting area as well. Now, making sense of all this data that we're going to get is going to be the next challenge. That's where AI comes in. I think sometimes when people say AI or machine learning, it's sort of scary. It's like, oh my God, we don't do that. You know, our environment, you know, we don't have that kind of thing running here. And yet we do know we have manual processes that could definitely be improved. Is there a a kind of a early step in automation that companies can take that's not full-blown, you know, AI, I'm going to train my own central model and deploy it, you know, within my company, which is, you know, intimidating, I think, depending on how big you are and what kind of, you know, staff you have. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, what the complexity or the problems that arise from the complexity, right, are with the number of what we call measurements, or just think of it as a way to identify a particular piece of hardware, firmware, version of the firmware, version of the software, right? Think about all the different software components that go even into an operating system. So you end up having, you know, tons and tons of these measurements or fingerprints, if you will, right, that are unique for that piece of software or hardware. Now, the challenge is, how do we make sense of all those? How how do we know which ones are the right ones, right? We may have a like a whitelist, if you will, right, of, you know, these are all the good measurements. But there are probably many versions that are good and a few that aren't good, right? And maybe even the combination of having a bunch of good measurements used in the same environment could lead to bad results. That's where some very basic uh, AI capabilities, if not just, you know, statistical, you know, kind of asset management type capabilities comes in, keeping track of all these different measurements in a cloud environment, right? You can maybe limit it by saying, all right, we're always going to be up to date, right? So there's going to be a limited number of measurements that we have to focus on or worry about uh, so that the problem doesn't become too intractable. Hmm. Ron Perez, Intel Fellow and Chief Security Architect, still makes me laugh when I say that. That's just such, <laughs> such a giant title. I don't know how you know you even <laughs> get up and go to work. I think I'd be discouraged even with the, <laughs> to have that title. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. 
The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.